Before we start today's episode, this episode of the Spokane Show is for entertainment purposes only. It's not a medical or psychological podcast. It does not constitute medical or psychological advice. Always seek the advice of your physician or mental health professional. Welcome to the Spokane Show, where I feature in-depth interviews with fascinating people while offering a fresh perspective on culture, community, and much more. I'll take you with me on deep dives into some of today's most compelling topics, and hopefully we're going to share some laughs along the way. This is a show about life, so please join me, your host, Eric Walker, for this episode of The Spokane Show. Depending on your definition of irony, it really would be no surprise if you haven't heard the story of Joyce Vincent. Joyce Vincent of London lived and died in obscurity. It's a tragic story, actually, but according to news archives, Vincent died in December of 2003. Her demise went literally unnoticed until January of 2006 for over the better part of two years. Joyce's death was not significant, and by that I mean her death didn't fit the criteria that a gore-addicted media often joneses for, like an addict to heroin. She wasn't brutally murdered. She wasn't a victim of a serial killer. The only thing that made her death worthy of appearing above the fold was that it wasn't until some 26 months after she died when someone finally discovered her mummified body sitting in the living room chair of her London studio apartment with the TV on. Joyce Vincent was a shut-in. Nobody came to check on her. No friends, no family. She apparently wasn't on anybody's radar. Her bank account was on auto payment. And it wasn't until her account dried up that authorities stepped in and tried to evict her and found her body. So you'd think a story like this is a one-off, but the sad tale of Joyce Vincent is an exclusive to Joyce Vincent. Last month, also in London, authorities found the body of 61-year-old Sheila Celion of South Africa believed to have died in 2019, also found well over two years later. These stories might be extreme examples of loneliness, but it's really not all that uncommon. A person becomes a shut-in. They stop communicating with their family and friends. They order everything online. They never meet their neighbors. They gradually become secluded and shut in with their electronics, thinking that is the thing that keeps them going. The world keeps moving like they never existed until one day. They no longer do. I read a study in the National Academy of Sciences that found 10 to 15% of Americans will likely die alone, and the number is projected to steadily increase by 2060. And according to a BBC study, 40% of 16 to 24-year-olds surveyed experience more loneliness compared to any other age surveyed. Aside from the risk of anxiety and depression, loneliness harms your physical health. It leads to more heart disease, higher blood pressure, and weaker immune systems. All these things sound pretty bad, but it does get worse because there's so much we don't understand about loneliness. So I reached out to Dr. Sean Horn. She's a licensed psychologist, an author, a podcaster, a talk show host, and a TEDx speaker. She is the host of the podcast Inspired Living and an expert panelist for the TV show Uncovered, Stories of Overcoming Shame and Struggle. With over two decades of experience in the mental health field, she is now bringing the wisdom of the therapy room to you with her online Inspired Living School, where she helps students to heal from shame and acquire skills for wholehearted living. Dr. Horn, with regard to social isolation and loneliness, this last couple of years, it seems not only have we been living through a viral pandemic, but we've been living through a pandemic of loneliness as well. Would you agree? Yes, yes. It's a real problem right now. What have you experienced in the industry with regard to caseload? Have you seen an increase or decrease of clients? I've seen a decrease in 
um, well, I've seen an increase in loneliness, especially as we become more and more reliant on digital forms of communication and connection. We've moved away from actual in-person exchanges with others, and now we are uh, doing more electronic stuff, kind of of entering some virtual worlds, relying on our social media. And this has really contributed, I believe, to this problem with people being isolated and lonely. And especially many people are not tax savvy. So those that are using those platforms to connect with their family and friends are, um, are still kind of feeling connected more so than those that don't want to text and they don't want to be on social media. So they're getting more and more removed from this world. Do you find coexisting mental health conditions that arise from isolation and loneliness? It contributes to depression, anxiety, uh, shame, the emotion of shame and social anxiety actually. So along with depression, anxiety, and isolation and loneliness, where do you start with a client? What's the work through? Well, it's really important that folks don't personalize this experience. I find that when we don't understand something, we tend to shame, blame, and stigmatize what we're experiencing. And there are many reasons why our body is experiencing anxiety. When it comes to anxiety, it is biophysical. If it was reliant on our thoughts, we would have resolved it a long time ago. This is what I tell my clients. I'm like, if you could have fixed this with your thoughts, you'd be done with this problem by now. So it's not generated by our thoughts. And the analogy I like to use is a, of a baby falling and a parent responding. So when the baby falls, it's involuntary. They have this physical reaction. It, their body is feeling the pain. And then the parent, they look to the parent like, am I broken? Is this bad? What's going on? And the parent will either react with alarm. Oh my goodness, you fell. And, and then everything gets escalated or the parent will respond appropriate, like um, focusing on what's effective and what's necessary. So they'll go, they'll investigate, like, are you just um, bruised? Are you hurt? Do you need a Band-Aid? Do we need to go to urgent care? And that is our modern brain. The falling child is our ancient brain. It's our body that first reacts and the modern brain then will respond to what the body is, the information that the body is giving to the modern brain. But the the thing is that our body's reactions and our nervous system is so much faster than our modern brain. Some theories say it's 25 times faster than our thinking brain. So our body is scanning the environment, it's taking in information. And if it likes what it's receiving, then it, it tells the brain we're good. If it doesn't, it will activate that, that alarm. So then the modern brain goes, what's going on? There's no reason for me to feel this. I'm home. I'm comfortable. I, 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 I don't understand this. And it makes it worse when other people say, why are you upset? Just, you know, don't be anxious. Don't be upset. Just and then you down. can't explain it. Yeah. Just calm down. And then you, and you can't, and then you go, what's wrong with me. And that's where we come up with the personal narratives that say I'm flawed. I'm defective. It's me. And also people will stigmatize mental health by saying, if you could just think this way, you'll be fine. Or they'll, you're being too willful, or you don't want to get better, or you're just being lazy. And they attribute people's character to this, to the struggle, their choices to the struggle. And now with all these coaches out there, 
there, they're kind of making it worse because they're emphasizing this choice. It, you know, what you feel is a choice, but whether I don't, it's not a choice if I have a fever. It's not a choice if I have high blood pressure. You know, it might be a choice with how I manage my my high blood pressure, but it's not a choice that I'm having that reaction. So it's really important that we educate people about their bodies and their brains and say, this is what's going on. This is why your body is doing this and your brain is doing this. And then we'll know how to target it to correct it and uh, help them feel better. What is your insight on the approach I've seen in self-help books that imply that if you train your mind like you trained your muscles, things would get better for you. Does that always work? It's it's a little more complicated than that, but but yes, this is really exciting research, and it's bringing us so much hope with what we can do to change our brains and our body. So our brain has this circuitry. So think of it like your brain is the hardware. We're born with this potential, but our experiences, our thoughts, that is our software, kind of how we program the brain and tell the brain what to do. So think about an athlete who says, I want to be a basketball basketball player. And so their brain has the potential to learn to become a basketball player. And so then the the athlete will begin practicing. They'll begin dribbling the ball and, and doing practice over and over and over and over. And what they're doing when they have that repeated consistent practice is they're building neural pathways, kind of like hiking trails in the brain saying, we need to have this pathway. We're going to use it and we're going to rely on it. And at first it's somewhat, uh, it's like a hiking trail that has hasn't quite been groomed, Mm -hmm. but then the more you do it, you're grooming it every time you practice. And eventually the brain goes, Whoa, this is a high priority. We're, we're using this pathway so often. I think we need to pave it and turn it into a road so we can have quick access and quick transportation on this pathway. So then over time, it becomes so rapid that now we have the basketball player. That's not even thinking about what they're doing. They're automatically in flow and their body is having this instinctual reaction that they've shaped in their brain. And we do the same thing with our thoughts. Every time you think something, every time you feel something, you are uh, strengthening that neural pathway in the brain. And so people who tend to focus on the negative. And again, that's not a choice. Our brain is designed to look at what is the danger? What is the problem? So if we've had danger in our world and we've had things that our brain says, I need to pay attention to this for our survival, it will start to shape a preoccupation with danger. And so the person will continue to think this negative thoughts and that becomes self-reinforcing. And eventually they say, I'm a pessimistic person. I'm a negative person. And I would say you are not. It That has become a habit, a mental habit that has been rehearsed so much over time that the brain has made it a high priority and it becomes a default kind of like the grooves in a freeway you know how when you're driving the trucks are um, have created these grooves and your car keeps wanting to go into that uh, line that is in in the cement that's kind of what our brain does like we go i'm going to be 
positive. And it goes, nope, we got to go back to the negative groove because that's what we know and that's what we feel safe. So what the research shows is that as you begin to practice new ways of thinking, you begin to shift those neurocircuitries. It begins to tell the brain that that negative path is not a high priority anymore because now we're using this other path. And eventually that trail will begin to uh, get growth over it and it won't be so grooved and you'll have this new path that begins uh, to be more established and they say it takes about 63 days to create that and if you think about your body if you break your bone if you are repairing an injury they normally say it takes about two to three months for your body to heal. The same thing with the brain, about two to three months for this new pathway to get established. And once it is established, it's gonna become easier to have those thoughts, to have that experience. But we have to intentionally direct our thoughts to the kind of thoughts we want to experience. So we're not controlling what we see, but we're controlling where we put our attention. And here's the, here's the secret though that I tell my clients, if they deny what they're feeling and they deny the danger, the survival brain is going to resist that. It's gonna fight them because our ultimate priority is to survive. So if the survival brain is saying, there is a rattlesnake in this room and we say, no, I am in a peaceful space. There are no snakes in my world. <laughs> you know, the brain's going to go, what is wrong with you? There's a rattlesnake in this room. I will not let you ignore that. And the person's like, no, there's no snakes in my room. And so you'll have this internal battle between the ancient and the modern brain. And the ancient brain typically will override. So what we want to do is acknowledge, even though I feel that there are snakes in this room, I am aware that there there is not a snake in this room that I am safe. Even though I feel depressed, I am grateful for these things. Even though I feel anxious, I am safe and all is well. So you have to acknowledge what it's saying and then transition the mind to where you want to direct your attention. What I'm taking away from this conversation so far is the brain is naturally conditioned to operate efficiently by repetition and that analogy of the grooves. Is that correct? And it's programmed by all of our ancestors. So let's say one of my 10th great grandparents hundreds of years ago was attacked by a white rabbit and it said white rabbits are dangerous and so that gets programmed in that software so now the code is put into our computer and then they have a child who is a scared of white rabbits and they have a child scared of white rabbits that's a tongue twister actually i should use another example <laughs> so you know all of a sudden here i am and i am anxious and phobic about white rabbits and I don't know why why am I feeling this way it's ridiculous and so we get that that's where um, they talk about intergenerational trauma being passed on or like in some um, spiritual teachings they'll talk about the the path of our ancestors being passed
passed on, you know, you've heard that saying, the sins of the father uh, carry on. This now we know through neuroscience is actually a a thing. But the hope of that is that we can reprogram that through our own experience. So even though my ancestors may have had this habit that passed on, this struggle, we can begin to practice a new way. And that will help our further generations to begin to shift and change their brains as we change the coding of our software. It seems like we're on autopilot. We are. And we We, forget. We we do. We're not even aware of these impulses and reactions. Is that accurate? Yeah. And then people say, it's me. What's wrong with me? And then people go, oh, you're so, why are you so hypervigilant? You're always so edgy. Uh, Relax, you know? And the person is struggling with that. And they think, well, it's, I'm just born with this, this uh, destiny. And we now say, no, you're not. We can't, we can change it. And it is possible. Our brain has this thing called neuroception which is an unconscious involuntary system in our body that is scanning the environment for danger 24 seven. It's like this radar. And before we even go into a room, it's entered the room and it's picking up information and it gives our, our brain and our nervous system very specific feedback of whether I am in a dangerous situation or I am in a safe situation. And this, uh, is at play. And so when people get weird vibes or something doesn't feel right, they don't know why they'll say, Oh, I'm always so doubtful. Or why don't I trust people? Or I don't like people or things like this, but it's, it's trying to give you this feedback, but sometimes it can overshoot. Sometimes it can get a little jumpy and misread situations. So this is where we want our modern brain and our ancient brain to work together in a supportive, compassionate way to say, huh, okay. Anxious brain, you're, you're feeling alarmed. Um, let me check this out. Is there something going on and not doubt our Ourselves. This is where people get in trouble. They, I don't know if you've heard this term of gaslighting. It's very mm. trendy right now Yes. where they say people will gaslight you. Like you go, why, why did you, um, you said you'd be home at five, but you were home. You didn't come home till midnight. And they, and then the person goes, you're so, you're always trying to micromanage things. Why can't you relax? Okay. So that's an example of gaslighting. They flip it. Like something's wrong with you. Your perception is wrong. Your, the way you're sensing things, feeling things, thinking about things is wrong. So when we've had that experience where growing up, our world told us we don't think right, feel right, act right. Then when we get these feelings, we doubt ourselves and we will gaslight ourselves and say, oh, I'm so dramatic. I, I'm too sensitive. And so we'll ignore those cues that our body is giving us. And then they'll say, I can't trust myself. No, you can trust yourself because that gut instinct, that intuition never is wrong. It never harms somebody. If you think about, and if a listener thinks about the times that their intuition gave them nudges, if they listened to that, would they have been harmed? Most of the time people say, I would have been better off if I had listened to that. So it's kind of this quiet wisdom that lives in our belly. I call it the inner cave person and it gives us nudges. It grunts. It has cave person talk. So it will go, "Mm, mm, mm, mm," you know, and so it will nudge you and we want to get attuned to that and not ignore it so that we can use that for our benefit. But most people, 
people, especially if we've had trauma and we've had difficult times, we've cut off our attunement to our gut. And people say, well, I don't have intuition. I don't have sixth sense. And so we have to help them get back in tune with it. And when I'm checking with people on this, I'll say, do you notice when you need to eat? Do you know when you're hungry, when you're full, when you're tired, when you're cold, hot? And a lot of times they go, no, I just kind of go through my day and I realize I forgot to eat and so forth. So they're ignoring all of the biofeedback that their body is giving them to help the body work the way it's meant to work. So we have to get back in touch with that and start to pay attention to, do I have tension? Is my belly hungry? Do I feel peaceful? You know, and try to connect. And that we do that that's part of the therapeutic journey to really help people get reconnected once again to their bodies so they can know that their body is working for them, not against them and how they can uh, use that to live well and masterfully. Our world is becoming more and more filled with distraction. Information moves faster, louder, brighter than ever before. Entertainment, social media, and marketing have never been so prevalent in our society. How much are mental health challenges attributed to our environment versus our genetics? Well, the genetic is a predisposition. Like I think about uh, dogs, you know, some dogs are really active. Some are super chill and calm. And, and we as people tend to have certain dispositions where we're more active people or we're just more um, like couch, want to just cuddle up all day kind of people. Uh, we might be more jumpy than others, especially if our ancestors had a lot of anxiety, we're going to be more predisposed to anxiety. So the idea that our nervous system when we're born has a potential to it that is influenced by that programming of our ancestors. But what we now know with this new theory called polyvagal theory of our nervous system is that our, when we're born, our nerves need to get what we call myelinated, which means it needs to get insulated like a pipe. You know how you cover the pipe with um, what insulation to keep it from freezing? Yeah. So we, we have this material that wraps around our neurons to help the messages that are transported through the neuron to flow quickly and smoothly. If that neuron is not insulated, then the information is kind of clunky. It doesn't move and, and communicate as swiftly and as smoothly. So it's kind of like a sled. Like we have this sled and we need to polish it. We need to make it really smooth. So when we go down the hill, it will just slide really well. But if we don't uh, smooth it out. It's like riding a sled on a summer hill that's rocky. If it's smooth, it's like sledding down a snowy hill very quickly. And so the theory says that we, our nervous system will get myelinated through the co-regulation with our parents. And what that means is that when I'm a child and I'm dysregulated, I'm upset, I'm crying, I'm anxious, I'm frustrated, I'm hungry. I'm feeling all these things all at once. And the parent comes and can just be calm in that presence. Think of a, a colic baby and a parent who's just rocking the baby and just soothing it, you know, just kind of have motheries and and patting the back and shh, it's okay, it's all right, you know, just really calm. That experience helps the, the baby's body to get myelinated. And as children, we outsource our nervous system to our parents and say, yeah, we literally outsource, like they're our hardware. And through that relationship, through it 
being safe, consistent, and dependable and calm, and that they can tolerate our feelings. They can be with us in relationship with our feelings. It's okay if we're mad. It's okay if we're sad. They don't reject us. We don't have to isolate. Then we will get a very um, regulated nervous system. And what that means as an adult is we will be slow to reactivity and we will be able to sufficiently soothe ourselves, soothe our nervous system. But this is an ideal situation. And so often parents will not be calm when their child's freaking out. Child freaks out, parent freaks out, you know? (laughs) And so, or they'll say, go to your room. I don't want to hear you crying. Get out of here, you know? And, And so then the child doesn't, isn't able to outsource that and they're not able to soothe themselves. And so then that person becomes an adult and their nervous system is what we call dysregulated, which means that they're quick to reactivity, but really slow to being able to self-soothe and maybe even not be able to self-soothe. So you know that game where you put your hands over somebody else's hands and then they are, they try to slap the top of your hands. So you're being really calm, but eventually you get a little bit jumpy and you're like, ah, and you, and you start pulling your hand really quick away and the person starts laughing. You know, this is kind of what a dysregulated nervous system does. It makes us really uh, jumpy and not as calm and collected in those situations. So let's say now you have a regulated nervous system and you become an officer and you're out there and you're experiencing danger constantly. This is what we now call nervous system trauma. Before trauma, old school trauma was you were in 9-11, you were held up, something really bad happened and now you've got shell shock. You can't shake it. New nervous system trauma says you were in a situation where your body went into fight and flight or freeze and you were unable to have sufficient time to bring it down and have a soothe, be soothed, be calm, be able to give your body respite. Kind of imagine like somebody who is in a trauma situation and they are able to go home and be with their loved one and their loved one holds them and, and they cry in their arms and that loved one is just, you know, I'm so glad you're here and that you're okay. And they have that reconnection with another safe person and they're soothed in that experience. So if somebody doesn't have that, and they go from one incident to the next incident to the next incident, go home, sleep, go back out, incident, 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 you're going to have your body cannot weather that over time. It cannot. It's the same thing you see with football players and things where they are on the field and they get injured and it's like, go right back out, go right back out. And we actually value this. We promote this idea that that somehow it's virtuous. Somehow you have incredible strength that you are strong and you're capable and you can endure a lot. You're calm in crisis situations. And actually, this is not a sign that that person has a certain strength. It's more of a sign that their body has been so impacted so much that it knows now what to do in crisis because it's living in trauma 24-7, so to speak. So when people say, I had a calm that surpassed all understanding, if they have a calm in the midst of a threat, then their body has now gone from fight and flight into 
the free state where we get numb, we kind of shut down and we're just doing what we need to do. And and this could be good if we're in a dangerous situation, like you have a fire, you have a threat, but it, we are not meant to live in that zone. And I feel so sad for emergency workers because they are living in that all the time. And it's just not good for our bodies. And I'm so grateful for people who are doing it, but they are really, their bodies are getting really beat up for that effort. They're making a sacrifice for us by taking on that job. And and what they don't know, what many people don't know is that when you're in that freeze response, life threat response, everything in your body um, starts to go to it prioritizes your vital organs. So in the meantime, your heart rate decreases, your blood pressure decreases, your temperature goes down, your muscle tone goes down. You start to get flat facial expressions. You start to avoid eye contact. You begin to have short breath. You withdraw from people and your hearing is not attuned to human voices anymore. It becomes attuned to the sounds of threat. So here's every car that drives by, every door that closes, dog that barks and so forth. And your immune system gets very compromised and it increases insulin. And so this is where a lot of people get diabetes and they begin to have problems with sleep apnea and and their metabolism. They start having weight problems because the body can't eliminate the cortisol. And so over time, you begin to have really some serious health consequences from that. Like the you start getting autoimmune problems, you start getting hormone problems because the body is not having rest that it needs to heal the body, restore it, balance the hormones, do all that it needs to do for us to be healthy and well. So they're calm and they're out there and they're doing this, but their body over time is going to get very sick. Where does loneliness fit in the spectrum? Is it in the fight or flight or the freeze level? So the thing with this neuroception is it specifically requires, in order for it to detect if we're safe, it requires that I am in the room with you, that we have eye contact, that I, and it's paying attention to your your facial expression, your eyes specifically, and the tone of your voice. If it likes the tone of your voice, if you're like Mr. Rogers and you have this really sweet, warm voice with lots of warmth and and tone, it goes up and down and sounds very um, inviting, it's going to like that. If your eyes have a lot of expression to it, it's going to like that. But if it if your eyes are flat, if your voice is flat or if it's harsh, then it's going to say, I'm in danger. So it's looking for that information. And if it doesn't get that information, if the timing is off, like when we Zoom people, we're there with them, but our timing is off. There's little glitches. It's not quite right on. And that unnerves our neuroception. It goes, something is wrong. And so to demonstrate this principle, think about animals and how they react to their owners when they're with them in person and how they react to them when they see them on a screen or on a phone. When they're in person, they're like really happy and uh, they're responsive. But then if you're on Zoom and you're out of town, you say, let me say hi to, you know, my little bat, my little dog. And they show the dog and the person's going to look at this screen like, or maybe not even look at the screen, not understand that there's something there and not recognize the voice. This is because because there's a neuroception violation. The animal does not detect what it needs to detect to know that is my owner. And the other example of 
of neuroception is um, the tone of voice. You can look at a dog and go, hey, doggy, I don't like you. No, I don't. I'm not going to feed you. I'm going to, you know, say something like this, like, the dog is going to wag its tail and be like, I'm so happy to be with you because it's going to love the tone of your voice. Right. It doesn't pick up the words. And this is the, showing us how important our voice tone is. And so when we get that, we're cool. And then we can approach people because we go down to the calm, the rest and restore of our nervous system. And when we're there, we want to approach people. We're open. We, we desire social contact. They call this the social engagement level of our nervous system. So you have the social engagement level, which is calm and peace. And then you have the fight and flight, which is a sympathetic response. And then the freeze, which is a life threat response. So when we're in that calm place, we are very open to connection. We want to approach people, but if we are in the the fight and flight and the freeze response it is telling us we're in danger and so it instinctually tells us to withdraw cover up and protect yourself and the the shame emotion is actually in that freeze response and shame is a social emotion it's saying something is wrong with me and i'm at risk of being exiled from this group so when you are talking with people through a device, whether it's email, whether it's texting, whether it's Zoom, our neuroception bugs out because all neuroception, what it requires is blocked. It doesn't understand interpersonal inter interactions through non-human devices. And so whether we could be happy talking to someone saying, oh, I'm gonna Zoom my family, but the body is not happy and the body is going to be in a threat condition. So let's pause here for a second and just real briefly talk about shame because people are very confused about shame and we need to take the shame out of shame. I call myself the shame busting psychologist and my mission is to help people become shame resilient or what we call shame free. So when we talk about shame, it's important to know that this is specifically a social emotion. I can have no shame about something like, let's say I'm a little girl and I'm dancing and I, I feel so proud of my dance. And someone says, oh, God, look at you. You can't dance. What are you doing? And all of a sudden I go, and I have the shame reaction because I have learned that that relationship, that social context is giving me the message that that is wrong and bad and don't do it or I will be judged. So guilt is what I feel when I violate my standards. Shame is what I feel when I violate your standards. And toxic shame is what I come to believe about who I am because I violated your standards. So a lot of times when we talk about shame, people go, well, there's nothing wrong with shame. We want shame. Yes, if a kid steals something and they get scolded and they feel shame, that is a really intense emotion that doesn't just say, don't do that. It's, it's a very strong stop now and never again. So shame is a social emotion that is hardwired into our body. It's involuntary. It's like an emotional reflex that kicks in in a social context that says, back up, protect yourself, you are in social danger. So when we are having 
not human interaction on non-human devices, the neuroception activates the, the alarm response, which cues the shame. So like if I put a smile on my face, that muscle movement tells my brain I'm happy. This is actually an intervention we do for people when they're not feeling good. We say, put just smile, smile as big as you can and hold it there for two minutes. It begins to lift someone's mood. Even though their mind is not feeling happy, the smile, the muscle movement tells the brain, this is what we're doing now. So shame response causes us to pull back to retreat and to look for cues of danger. And so that then our brain goes, well, what is this? And then we feel something's wrong and there we go. And we start the narrative, building a narrative that something's wrong with me and here comes the toxic shame. So when that gets activated, our brain says, I need to know where the danger is. So we'll actually become those like, social media stalkers, you know, that like are on there trying to looking at people's life, comparing ourselves to others, looking at, do I live like they live? Do I have family like they have family? And, and people will say, don't compare. And what I say is you can't help it. Your brain is programmed to gather that information. So instead of looking at it, like, there's something wrong with me and my self-esteem and I'm so insecure. Look at it as biofeedback that's telling you time to turn off the computer because it's overwhelming your neuroception. And how we repair that is to then go and be face to face with someone we like that we feel connected to. And this is the dilemma that we're having with loneliness is that as people rely more on digital communities, there are less and less of the normal exchanges that we have in the world. Like back in the day, if we were riding on a train or a plane, we would talk to people next to us. We would smile. We would interact with people in the line at the grocery store. But now everybody's face is in their phone. So we don't have the natural exchanges that our ancestors had thousands of years. And our modern brain has not had enough time to adapt to this new form of communication. Communication. We've got thousands of years versus the last 10 or 20 years, depending on how long you've been on digital communication. But because our shame response is all is activated, it compels people to protect themselves and hide behind a screen as well. Like they begin to fear the emotional vulnerability with someone because we have imposter syndrome now that's a that's a a symptom of shame is that you think oh if they really knew me they know that i'm flawed so if i can have this vicarious connection this kind of artificial connection it somewhat meets my need but not fully but it also meets my need for protection so people will only interact with people through texting and dating people virtually and things but they'll get really anxious about being in person with them and now we have this dilemma that what our body actually needs to heal and to get out of the shame region of that freeze response and get back into the calming social engagement level where we feel connected and safe and grounded in order for us to do that, we have to be with people. But now our body is saying it's unsafe. So it's it's so stuck because our solution is also being perceived as the enemy, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. 
And so we then don't know what to do and we don't have that interaction out there in normal ways. So I believe that the reason why we're having increased anxiety, increased loneliness is this problem with digital communication or reliance on it. And so, you know, people hear this and they go, well, what do I do about it? And I just say, in every chance you have, put yourself in an environment that you feel safe and begin to help your body feel safe in social contexts. Talk to people, smile at people, look at people in the eyes and begin to build those interactions. And if you can't, because some people have had so much social trauma, shame is social trauma. And I have a theory that shame is a form of PTSD. I want to call it PTSD-S, like shame trauma. When we have that, our, we can't feel safe with people. We, we really struggle. And, that, and I encourage anyone who is having that experience to get into therapy with a provider who is polyvagal informed, who can understand that your body is having this reaction. See, here's something that people really, it's so important that we know. Before I became a trauma specialist, I, I really became a specialist with this about within the last three years. Before that, you know, I've been in the mental health field for 30 years. I thought, I know what I'm doing. I've, I've been trained. I don't need to do this new tr trauma training stuff. You know, I, I, I got what I need to know. And so I was engaging with people, engaging their thought process. We would have talk therapy, cognitive therapy, but you can't uh, address nervous system trauma with talk therapy. You have to do the body work and the mind work. So you have to help the baby that fell and you have to equip the parent's response, right? If we go back to that analogy. Right. So there are a lot of providers out there that are doing therapy, but they're not engaging the body. They're not doing somatic interventions, but new trauma specialist, new trauma in the field of, of that work is doing somatic work. So you want to find a provider that it specializes in somatic uh, therapies and is polyvagal informed because they're going to understand that we can't eliminate your alarm response with thought only. We have to help the person do the, reconnect with the body. And we might not know why they're having a trauma response. Old therapy says we have to know why to resolve it. New therapy says you're not going to know why, because when you're in a trauma, trauma situation, your brain will not code what it needs to code to recall it later. It's, it's too much in survival. So later when someone says, well, what happened? They're relying that you have you are able to give a declarative memory, which means a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You can't have declarative memory and trauma. It's too spotty. It's too chopped up. And our nervous system will alter things. Like you might see a face that is surprised, that has a surprise expression, but neuroception, if it feels threatened, it will translate that into an angry expression. If uh, a volume level is normally a five between zero to 10, if you're in trauma state, it's now an eight or a 10. So everything is louder, bigger, faces look more threatening. And this is where we need to equip, you know, we talk about these emergency workers who are not practicing, they're, they're kind of trained, they go out there. So they didn't give their brain the opportunity to, to build those pathways to have um, certain responses. And they are, their brain is telling them that they're threatened. And people go, well, why, why are they, look at them, they just shot that person. Well, you, if 
you understand polyvagal theory, you'll understand why their bodies got jumpy and why they did these things. You know, I'm not saying in all those cases that have been in the media, but in many cases. So once we can understand this, we can build interventions around it. But for the purpose of this podcast today, talking about loneliness is if people are too um, affected by negative social interactions, then get yourself in nature as much as possible and notice the nature. Notice the trees, the wind, the ground underneath your feet. Have pets if you like pets, you know, connect with your pet. And if you, if there's um, support groups that you can feel comfortable in or faith organizations that you feel comfortable in or any sort of community opportunities that might, you might feel more like-minded and supported by, get connected. One of the most powerful things that helps us heal in therapy is the relationship between between the provider and that therapist. And when they have that warmth and that safety in that therapy room, over time, that will help the nervous system to heal as well. So get yourself in support and get connected, but do not rely on digital forms for, for your primary way of getting connected. This should be supplemental, like on the side, minimal use, have more people connection than digital connection so that you can have the best nervous systems uh, health. And this will help us not feel so lonely. There's so much to unpack here. And it's fascinating how the human mind works. Yeah. For years, I would hear people say, I learned more in this session than I have 10 years in therapy. And (laughs) After so long of hearing this, I thought, okay, I'm going to make this available for people to share with their family and their friends. So that's where I came up with my YouTube channel and my podcasts and and then online courses and things. So people can have access to this information and learn and then bring that into their healing journey and utilize their um whatever support they're getting. But we do have to be educated about this so we can not feel so bad about feeling bad and know that you're not stuck. You don't, you're not, it's not going to be this way for your rest of your life. And some doctors actually say that to people. I have clients come to me and they say, my, my provider told me you're going to just feel this way for the rest of your life. So we have to get used to that. And I'm like, wow, it throws them into the worst, uh, worst depression ever. And, and at the same time, when people have the expectation that I'm going to go therapy and this anxiety is going to be gone, this memory, this trauma, whatever is going to be gone, that sets people up for failure too. We, we, what we're doing is we're helping people respond to it differently and experience it differently. And so when they do feel anxious or they are reminded by that trauma, they have a plan for how they're going to respond to it. And then that way it flows more. It's not as sticky and they can live more in the, in the here and now rather than trying to fight this experience they're having and being so scared by it. So there's so much hope you can flow, you can manage it so much more effectively and feel emotional freedom, have emotional freedom if you could imagine that and uh, and be well. So, so much hope and healing. It's just a matter of finding the right resources and the right provider or communities to help people heal. Dr. Horn, remind the one listener that I have the name of your podcast. Inspired Living. Inspired, and you can find it anywhere on uh, Apple, Tunes, Spotify, but you can also um, hear it on my YouTube channel. So, If people want to follow me, whether it's YouTube, whether it's on Instagram or Facebook, and and I'm primarily on Instagram, um, that's where 
I put the most energy with a lot of the information that and YouTube. So YouTube, I can teach more. Instagram's kind of like little shot, little snapshots, but everywhere is Dr. Sean Horn. So just spell D-R-S-H-A-W-N Horn at like the trumpet. And you'll find me everywhere. If you just Google me, you'll be able to connect. And my website is drshawnhorn.com. Dr. Horn, I really appreciate the time you took out of your day to spend with me. It's fascinating. I know that I'm going to have you on the show again. Uh, We haven't had that conversation yet, but just giving you a heads up. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the input you had today. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here and thank you. And thank you everybody for listening to this episode of The Spokane Show. 